Hey there, this is Whitney Peak with the Launch Podcast, where I'm asking entrepreneurs how they started their ventures from the ground up, where they made mistakes, and ultimately how they pivoted or iterated to make it all work. Making mistakes creates experience, and when those experiences meld together, work to make more successful ventures as long as entrepreneurs are taking the time to learn all along the way. I want to help us understand how entrepreneurs make those decisions all along their journey and use those pivotal moments of failure to learn or what we might call fail up to ultimately create successful businesses. Today's guest is Lainey Snyder, who is the queen of the side hustle and the better half of the Snyder power couple running Lake Spring Beef and Ruby Branch Farms. Lainey and her husband Drew were students of mine at Murray State around 2007. Lainey came to Murray State from Zanesville, Ohio, and then majored in ag business and found her way to her husband's hometown, Franklin, Kentucky, which is about an hour north of Nashville. Uh, In 2014, she and Drew started Ruby Branch Farms, and at the initial year in 2014, had about 400 mums, and this year up to 5,100. They also added Lake Spring Beef this year, which has been a tremendous success, and I'll let Lainey tell you all about that. In addition to her side hustles, Lainey works full-time in ag lending and will graduate with her master's in ag this fall. So Lainey, welcome to the launch. Thank you so much for having me. We're so glad you could join us today. So, you know, like any good um, story about entrepreneurship, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about your journey, please. Okay. Well, I, like you said, I grew up in Zanesville, Ohio, and I grew up about as removed from agriculture as you could be. A lot of people can say, you know, I used to go home, you know, go back and visit my grandparents' farm or, you know, my great aunt had some land or something like that. And I had none of that. Um, The closest tie that I had to a farm and to agriculture would have been my great grandparents that I never met. So, um, but I did get involved with horses really young. And that kind of brought me into the ag world. But Um, If you're a farmer or a rancher, you'll be the first to admit that um, showing horses and taking care of a show pony is not farming and it's not really (laughs) agriculture Um, because, you know, you're not making any money with that. So um, I grew up showing horses and then eventually um, converted over to rodeoing. And that's what actually brought me to Murray State uh, was the rodeo team down there. and. I had been in FFA and ag classes through high school. Um, We weren't really a powerful school when it came to ag and FFA. Um, So I, so we were, I wasn't involved in a whole lot. And um, when I met with the rodeo coach at Murray, he told me, well, you know, a lot of rodeo kids major in ag. And I was like, well, heck, I might as well major in ag business. Why not? And uh, the irony of all that and where I've come from, um, since then is pretty funny, but I'm thankful I have that ag business degree. It really has come in handy here. (laughs) I had no idea that was your story. So (laughs) learn something new. Yeah. Now, you know. And so in terms of starting Ruby Branch, where did you get your inspiration? What, what made you decide to launch that business? Uh, And how did you get the idea for moms and that sort of thing? Okay, well, that's, I guess Drew has to come into the story there. So I met Drew um, my junior, senior year, somewhere around there at Murray. 
and um, we made the decision to move back home to the family farm in 2012. He is a fourth generation row crop farmer. And um, we decided, you know, after we moved back that we were going to work towards him uh, taking over the row crop farm. So we were talking and we decided that um, some diversity would be a really good thing to bring back to the farm. You know, a lot of farms, uh, even as he was growing up, you know, they had the row crops with the traditional grains and they had some cattle that they backgrounded and they raised tobacco. And, you know, even on this farm, there was once a dairy and, uh, it kind of in the nineties, people tended to shift towards one way or the other. And around here, that one way really was the row crops. So we decided we wanted, wanted to diversify the farm a little bit and do something a little out of the box. So, uh, Drew kind of threw out the idea of raising some mums and he, he had majored in, um, horticulture for a couple years while he was at Murray. So he was familiar, a little bit familiar with raising mums. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of strange, but we can try it. What, you know, why not? Um, so we jumped in with that in 2014. And like you said, we started off with 400 mums and a little pop-up tent and a handful of pumpkins. And we've just kind of slowly let it grow from there. So I, obviously like that was a big leap that you made into that and a big investment for a young married couple. What, what were some of the mistakes or the obstacles or challenges that really stick out to you that you learned the most from as you guys launched into that venture? Well, let me think about that. Uh, was there anything that went horribly wrong? <laughs> um, I would say when we first jumped into it, we made the mistake of thinking that we knew a lot more about raising mums than we did. Um, we just got extremely lucky the first couple of years with how well our mums grew. And we didn't really have a lot of disease or pest pressure um, come in. Um, so that was definitely a learning curve. About the third year when we started, when we got to about a thousand mums, when things kind of started to go wrong with the mums, we had to take a step back and be like, wow, we are not God's gift to mum growers. We've just gotten really lucky. Um, we need to figure some stuff out. So we definitely learned that. Um, you are never the expert in whatever you're doing because something's always going to prove you wrong and that you've always got to keep learning and keep searching out uh, new information. And what has, what from customers has surprised you? So what did you think you knew about customers uh, and what you had to offer them versus maybe what they wanted? Or um, is there anything that you thought would happen one way, but that actually happened another with your customer base? We thought that it was going to be a whole lot easier than it was to um, sell mums and get people to our farm. You know, we just thought we'll raise a good product and people will, if you build it, they will come, you know, and <laughs> yeah. that's not always the case. Um, I had had quite a bit of experience um, in customer service and I wasn't sure 
um, you know, how, how they would feel coming out to the farm. But for the most part, it's been very pleasant. I've found that when people come out to buy mums and pumpkins, they're pretty happy. You know, it's not like they're mad because they have to replace an appliance. So they're coming to see you, you know, when they come out to the farm, they're pretty pleasant. They're pretty, pretty happy. And luckily, you know, knock on wood, we haven't had just a lot of negative experiences. Oh, is there anything, you know, maybe you thought that one color would be a big hit and it was actually another that was in high demand. And so you ran out of one thing and um, any, any experiences like that? Oh my gosh. Yes. Every year. Um, the only, only mums that we know for sure people are going to like are, are candy corn mums. But even then we don't raise as many as I know that we could sell because what happens if next year we, we raise twice as many and people don't like them anymore, you know, uh, preferences are super fluid and, um, people change their minds a lot, but one place that we have continually failed forward is our wholesale accounts and fundraiser accounts. Um, that has been a whole new challenge of, we give people numbers that, you know, they need to sell and, Either they oversell completely, they, you know, we say, they say they're going to sell 200 and they sell 300 or they say they're going to sell 50 reds. Last year was a year for red mums for some reason. And we were short about, I think, four or 500 red mums. So we actually had to outsource and drive to about two and a half hours round trip just to get enough mums to fill those orders. So there's always surprises like that, that, you know, you were trying to figure out how to prevent, but it's, it's humans. <laughs> we're not perfect. Uh, no, <laughs> that makes it a little bit more difficult. Uh, I'll, this is just a snippet and a snapshot, but I was out there last weekend um, picking up my own mums, which were orange, by the way. Uh, and I noticed that to me, your target customer at that exact time of day around 1030 on a Saturday uh, looked like parents of small children who desperately wanted it to be fall and were already trying to wear flannel. Yeah. Uh, but in general, who who do you see as your primary customer or your primary segment that you're dealing with in terms of your mom customers? Our target market is... Um, pretty much going to be that young family, especially um, the people that we are marketing to come out to the farm and spend a couple hours. Um, we do have games and a corn maze, and most of that stuff is going to be geared towards the younger children. Um, but we also have an older customer base, dare I I don't want to call it the seniors, but the senior customer base um, that really like to decorate their homes um, and are really like chrysanthemums. So um, we typically see them on the afternoons during the week. And we've changed our hours a lot over these last six years to try to figure out, you know, when our target um, customers want to shop. And that's definitely been a learning experience as well. Um, so I've really enjoyed over time getting to watch your social media evolve and see how the business changed through the lens of that social media. And also, I think that set the stage for you to enter a new market as well. So do you care to talk to me just a little bit about how your social media journey and how you see it has evolved over time? 
Yeah, social media is a huge part of our business and um, I think can be a huge part of a lot of businesses. You know, the way I started it was just trying to uh, make sure everything I posted was um, positive and professional. And then that's just kind of evolved over time to show a little bit of our personalities and to be funny. Um, but I think the most important thing is that people never came to our page and saw anything just negative or unprofessional. Um, and I took, I actually, um, took some classes, spent a little bit of money and, um, learned about social media marketing. And, um, one of the biggest things that I took away from it is you, if you want to, be good at social media, you need to make it a job and make it a priority. Um, because people can tell the difference between, you know, if you just kind of post erratically, or if you're actually making a conscious effort. Wait a second, is that why none of my stuff has gone viral yet? Because I don't make a conscious effort? You know, it could be it could be in those hashtags, Whitney, you gotta, you gotta stay on fleek with the hashtags. Is that the right thing? Well, I have personally enjoyed the journey of Cuddles Marshmallow, the miniature donkey. Uh, he's he's one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Um, I enjoy I enjoy his prisoner logs. Yes, he's he's way more famous than I will ever be, and that's okay. He's really cute. You're basically the pioneer woman of Franklin, Kentucky. So I wouldn't underestimate yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And in that journey to the ranch, um, do you could tell us a little bit about what you have going on in your beef business and sort how you started that and, and what, um, what was your motivation to do that and how's it going? Sure. Well, the beef business kind of came out of a necessity. So I was given, I was gifted my wonderful Delilah Eleanor, which is a cow, um, when I moved to Franklin back in 2012. And she was a bred heifer. So um, she had a calf. And then in a couple years, her heifer calf had a calf. So I was slowly growing this herd. Um And I got to a point with my little ragtag group of cows and their calves that I had that, you know, this was past the point of just being fun little pets and they were costing money and I had to figure out a way to make money with them. Um, And I and we talked a little bit about pivoting and, you know, changing your plans and how you're going to make things work. Well, my cattle operation is a perfect example of lots of pivots. If you can imagine Ross in the stairwell with the with the sofa screaming pivot, that's been me for, <laughs> for about eight years uh, trying to figure this whole thing out. Um, when I first got, Delilah is a Coriante cow, and if you're not familiar with them, they're very similar to a Longhorn, and they're utilized primarily um, – at rodeos for um, the roping events. So when I first got this cow, my first thought was, I'm going to be a stock contractor when I grow up. I'm going to get me a big old herd going and I'm going to be hauling to all these rodeos and it's going to be great. Well, then as I start getting into that, I realized, wow, I'm going to need way more head of cattle than I have space for. That's not going to work. 
Well, then I thought, well, I'll just run a commercial cow-calf operation, which just means that I would raise calves till weaning or a little bit after weaning and then just sell them at um, their local stockyards and they go on to live with somebody else to finish out their life. And so I thought, I'll just be a commercial cow-calf operation. Well, then I went and took a Kentucky Master Cattleman class And they were explaining how little money you make on a calf per year. In Kentucky, on (laughs) average, it was less than $50 a calf that you actually, I think, I I wish I had my notes. I think it was on average, once you count out depreciation and everything, like the average farmer makes like $5 a calf or something crazy like that. Like, why are more people not doing this? Yeah, I know. Like, it's obviously the way to get rich in this state. So (laughs) I was like, well, okay, let me see how many acres do I have available? And then two acres per cow. And okay, so I can have 15 cows. And if I make, you know, $10 a calf, and I have 15 calves, wow, I'm really going to get rich doing this. (laughs) So I was literally sitting there in that class in Master Cattleman going, there's no way I'm going to run 20 cows and make, you know, $200 or less a year. Like that's crazy amount of work for nothing. So again, we pivot. And I thought, what else can I do? And At this point, my sister had been doing the direct-to-consumer meat um, deal for a while, and she had been doing chickens and hogs and maybe had gotten, and had gotten into some cattle. And I thought, well, this is the way that um, I ran numbers for probably two years on how to make a direct-to-consumer beef operation work for me. And um, so finally last year, I bit the bullet and um, bought my first set of feeder steers. And there was a lot of other stuff that went into that. Um, Had to put up fences, had to do all of these things. Um, But yeah, my final pivot was to um, direct to consumer beef. And that's where the Lake Spring beef comes in. And so far, so good with that. So do you care to tell us a little bit about your business model there? So when you sell direct to consumer, what are you offering them? Uh, What do they have to choose from that sort of thing? Well, another pivot I didn't talk about in there um, is the COVID-19 pivot, which everyone is still spinning around. We're still pivoting, I think. Um, But when I had initially decided that I was going to sell direct to consumer beef, I was going to sell holes, halves, and quarters um, where the consumer, the end customer, can pick how they want their beef cut, you know, what kind of steaks they want, all of that kind of stuff. Well, then as COVID-19 hit, I really, I hate to say this, but COVID-19 hit at a great time for me um, to try to sell beef. I know that sounds terrible, but um, because my first steer that I ever took to the processor, processor went in April of this year. So that was when there was some meat shortages in the grocery store um, and and people were really starting to see the importance even more than they already had of trying to buy locally and directly from a farmer. So um, 
Where was I going with that? <laughs> Talking about how this evolved. So, yeah. you know, how you, how you made it work and what your business model looks yes. like. So I um, initially had started that I wanted to sell holes, halves, and quarters. Well, once I noticed that there was some meat shortages in the grocery store, I decided to go ahead and just sell um, cuts, individual cuts. And I knew from the beginning that that was a more profitable way to go about it, but it's also um, more time consuming and going to be having to work with more people individually. Whereas if I sold two halves to a steer, I'm only dealing with two customers. Whereas if I'm selling beef off of a steer and, in, you know, 500 pounds worth of individually cut beef, I'm working with, you know, possibly 100 people. So I knew that would be um, a little bit more difficult, but I also felt like it was good that I could, you know, help more families get beef into their freezer. And how fast did you sell out when you offer made the offering this fall um so my first year in the spring I sold 500 pounds worth of beef in about four hours um but again that was when people were legitimately concerned about getting beef into um at the grocery store um this fall I offered about 750 pounds worth of beef in pre-sale and I sold that in about five hours that is phenomenal. Yes. It, it's so, so exciting. I, but it also it that was that was something that it was overwhelming at the time. I thought, you know, I'll just post this and I'll post my five options. And I, you know, my husband and I were actually at the lake, but I was like, you know, I'll just post these as they come in. I'll send the invoices through Square. It'll be fine. Holy moly, it blew up and it was very stressful. <laughs> Well, right. With great success also comes some stress. So it's so I'm taken away from this one that you were constantly learning. So that seems to be a recurring trend that you're always going to classes or enrolling in something or reading up in your industry and then just being aware of your surroundings and what's going on in the marketplace. Yes. All of that is super important. And I can't stress the keep learning enough, you know, um, Myself and uh, the young lady, Danielle, that works for us, you know, we just went last month, um, we drove back over to Hopkinsville and we did a greenhouse tour and just to learn about um, different plants that are selling in the fall season that we currently don't offer. And, you know, just doing things like that is so important. It really is because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the industry is always evolving regardless of what industry you're in. And if you're up to speed on trends, you're more likely to be able to bend and flex with whatever changes happen. For sure. For sure. So what's the biggest surprise you've had since you were in business? Hmm. The biggest surprise has been how much for having a business that is your own and you think this is going to be great. I'm going to love all of this is how much of the behind the scenes stuff that you just don't enjoy. And you're probably not (laughs) going to enjoy. 
Um, you know, cause I think that's everyone's dream is I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. This is going to be great until you're sitting there, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, you know, trying to go through receipts and, you know, keep your books and just do all the stuff that honestly is just not fun. At least it isn't for me. Well, and maybe someday you'll be to a point where you get to work on the business and not in the business uh, so that you don't have to do bookkeeping. Yeah, well, I will say I'm pretty fortunate that um, Drew, who is my husband, is the primary bookkeeper of this establishment, but I still get called in, you know, and I'm in charge. I am pretty much solely in charge of my beef stuff, so I get enough of it. And so for you, what's the most rewarding part of what you do? Well, our initial goal with all of this, again, another pivot started off, you know, we're just going to raise some mums and make some money. But by year two, I realized like, man, there is a disconnect between um, the common, um, common person in the U.S. and a farmer. So we decided to kind of make this into a little bit more of an agritourism type destination with the mums and everything. And then also too, with my beef, you know, I'm making connections with the people, you know, that are actually the end consumer for my beef. So there's probably a lot of people that are buying from me that have may never had a true conversation with a farmer or with the person that raised the food that they're eating directly. So that's been the best part of all of this is, uh, you know, trying to help tie um, people back to a farmer and to agriculture and to answer some of the questions that maybe people have about modern day agriculture that they don't understand. So you get to be an advocate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the corny jokes just keep oh. coming. Uh, <laughs> it never stops the day in the life of a professor. Uh, so tell us what's next. Like what's next on your radar and how are you investigating that to figure out whether or not it'll work? Yeah. So our goal with Ruby branch every year has just been to steadily grow. Um, so this year is our first year that we actually drew and I plan on actually paying ourselves a little bit out of the business. So <laughs> that's really exciting to um, think that that could happen for us. But our goal is just to always grow a little bit. This year, we added a corn maze and just stuff like that. Um, we're planning on next year uh, moving into the Christmas season. So um, I have a friend of mine that I actually met at Murray State as well that is raising Christmas trees over in the far western part of the state. So we will have cut Christmas trees and we hope to buy some poinsettias from another farm here in Kentucky and just make it look like a Hallmark movie around here. And photography. You've opened up the sunflower. Do you also want on pictures among the Christmas trees? Yes, exactly. Like we want, we want to just have a lockdown on your on your summer, fall, and Christmas holiday pictures. Just like, come out here. We've got you covered for all the seasons, except spring. Sorry. Well, obviously, I'm a little bit biased because you guys were my students, but it is so exciting to see all the things you've made happen in such a short amount of time. 
six years can seem like an eternity day by day, but wow, you've made a lot of progress since 2014. Um, so that's real. that's gotta be exciting for you. It is really exciting. And, um, sometimes it's hard in the day to day to really see how far we've come, you know, but sometimes we have to just take that step back and look and be like, okay, what we're doing is worth it. You know, look at, look at where we've come and it's exciting to, you know, think about where we're going in the future too. So a lot of our audience is going to be forced listening from my class. So uh, I would ask if you have one piece of advice for somebody who wants to start their business, uh, what would it be? Don't quit your day job. And it's hard and you're going to lose a lot of sleep and um, you're going to wonder if it's worth it. But man, it's worth it to know, you know, if this business flops, I've got something, A, I've got, you know, something for myself to fall back on. And B, I've, I've got some revenue, com- or not some revenue, but I've got, you know, some paychecks coming in that are going to help soften the blow to all of this. Um, you know, we're six years in and I'm, my husband and I both still have outside jobs. So we're just doing that for our own security. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't stress enough to not quit your day job, day job until you really feel secure in your business. That's fantastic advice, especially to dip your toe in the water, right? Because if that first year of months had gone poorly, you could have just dropped back. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and, you know, and, don't, I guess this is a second one, but don't invest so much in your business when you first start off that you can't financially pull yourself out of that with your day job. You know, we, we really had relatively little invested in the first year because we did start so small and we've just slowly grown over time um, to make sure that our business is sustainable for itself. So what it sounds like you're saying is that having a minimally viable product that you can test with the consumer and learn from is probably a good idea. Yes, that is a fantastic idea. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) straight from an entrepreneur's mouth. The things we're learning in class are actually relevant. So, Lainey, I can't thank you enough for your time today uh, and taking time to to talk to me about your experiences and what you've learned along the journey. And I know those who are listening will be able to take a lot away from it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for um, your wonderful ag econ lessons back in the fall of 2007. I'm sure some of it stuck in there and I'm using it today. (laughs) I'm sure. Remember back that far. Oh, yeah. I, I've still got my notebooks somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Lainey's journey here on the launch with me, your host, Whitney Peak. Tune in for our next episode on anchor.fm slash the launch, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.